if, you, um, if you've just joined us, we're in this letter that Paul is writing that is written to the, the Corinthian church. And um, it's, we're taking our time through it. Um, and it's just been a wonderful time. So let me pray, um, set my mind here a little bit. Heavenly Father, uh, just guide us in our time. Um, show us where you are uh, leading us um, as a community. Uh, show us the ways that we can uh, respond to who, who you are and how you're working. Um, and uh, soften our hearts to what you have to say. We pray these things in your name. Amen. The book of 1 Corinthians, lately we have been in this section called Foolishness. And it's called foolishness because Paul is comparing and contrasting the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of how our culture operates, um, really kind of how the system operates in our world with how God's wisdom is. And it, it looks to be such a huge gap that the wisdom of God seems like foolishness. That's what Paul is getting at. And the first week we talked about how foolish the cross was, and then we talked about a crucified Messiah, and how crazy that is to, to think about, especially for the people of Corinth. For us, this idea of a cross, um, it's, it's kind of like just a religious symbol. For them, this idea of a Jewish rabbi being crucified... Um, on a rubbish heap outside of a very rebellious city of Jerusalem was a scandalous thing to think about. And uh, so Paul talks about how foolish that is to think about. He also talked about the foolishness of a gathering of people like us. A gathering of people are living proof of God's genius God's sense of humor, let's be honest, and God's grace, and how this is all just kind of crazy, foolish talk, right? Today, we're going to be talking about how the announcement of the gospel, how it's foolish, how it's crazy. And so this starts off in 1 Corinthians, check this out, we're in actual chapter 2, people. We are cruising. 14 to go. Verse 1, it says, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. And we talked a little bit about this in his autobiography. We laid it out when he came. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. I didn't come with human Sophia as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ in him crucified. Remember this idea of crucifixion, just a scandalous, uh, repulsive thing to talk about, especially in this culture um, of citizens, Roman citizens who would not get uh, crucified. Uh, you could not be crucified as a Roman citizen. So this idea of someone being crucified actually meant that they weren't citizens, that they were outcasts, they were outside of society. Um, it would be uh, one scholar put it, it would be like at a dinner party talking about rats eating a dead dog. Repulsive to talk about a crucified Messiah. He said this in verse 3, I came to you in weakness, 
Now, scholars debate this. Um, in 2 Corinthians, this other letter that Paul wrote, he talks about a thorn in his body, that he has some, some malady in his body um, that, that talks about this weakness. Um, and scholars debate what that is. All we know is that Paul walked around with some sort of a physical uh, issue. Um, and then he goes on, he says, and he says, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Those are the verses we're covering today. On God at work, Paul says, using unlikely people like Paul, to make the story of Jesus real to people. Now, a lot of time this word, this word's interesting. This when he says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Um, when we think of the word preaching in kind of our context, you you guys think that that's what I'm doing right now. We think of sermons with lots of people listening and um, and then when we think of the modern idea of teaching, we think of school, we think of maybe a small group Bible study, and someone's teaching the Bible in that, in that situation. There's two different words that Paul uses for teach and preach. The word preach is actually caruso, and it means to make public. It's, it's really an announcement. And what they would do in, in Roman times is they would send people out to make announcements for the, for the, seas, for the Caesar, uh, the emperor in power. And kings and Caesars would send heralds announcing or preaching some bit of news. So this is really what Paul is getting at is, is I'm announcing, I'm heralding news of the gospel, of who Jesus is, of who this king is. Uh, he's saying basically Jesus is king and I have really good news about his kingdom. And Paul says that he brings this, he says, my message and my preaching, my announcement about King Jesus were not with wise and persuasive words, but they were a demonstration of the spirit's power saying, he's like, I, this is what preaching is. This is what uh, the announcement is for us to teach. This idea of teaching is a different word. It's didasco. It actually means to instruct or to help people learn. And it's tied to uh, scripture and kind of teaching scripture. And so in New Testament terms, I'm actually teaching right now. I'm not preaching. In New Testament terms, when Paul says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, what he's saying is, this is how we share the gospel. This is how I announce the kingdom. This is how I announce the gospel. He's like, I'm announcing the gospel. And the reality is, every single one of us announces the gospel. We share the gospel. Every one of us is an announcer. Every one of you is a preacher. How's that feel? See, around here we have a teaching team. It's Dan and Gabe and, and Randy. And, and then we have a, and, and Ben. Where's Ben? <laughs> We're going to get Ben up here, people. And then we have a preaching team. Serious. So there's some backstory here that's also happening. When Paul says, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling, he's kind of alluding to his biography. 
And when Paul shows up in Corinth, he shows up to announce Jesus, but he comes with great fear and trembling. So wouldn't it be good to find out where he came from? Turn to Acts 17. If you have a Bible, turn to Acts 17. We're going to start in verse 16. This is really, really important. And when I dug into this a few weeks ago, um, I was blown away by some things that I'd never realized before. And I think it has, makes all the difference in understanding the state of mind Paul was in when he showed up in Corinth. And so there's just a little bit of backstory here. And so promise you relevance is coming um, one of these days. Okay. Verse 16, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, uh, Paul was waiting for some of his crew. He was by himself. He's in Athens. He said, it says he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he's all by himself, he's looking around, there's idols everywhere. Uh, scholars have said that it's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. I mean, there was so much to worship there and so many different statues and, and, um, and temples. In verse 17, he said, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And there's so much background with those two different groups we're not going to get into. But some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods, um, like they didn't have enough. And they're like, we haven't heard of this one, you know? And so they said this because Paul was preaching, okay? He was announcing the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. They then, sorry, then they took him and brought him to a meeting of this place. And it's, <laughs> I hate pronouncing some of these words, right? It's actually translated Mars Hill, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas, right? So there was this uh, very relaxed, luxurious culture that just talked and thought. It was a city of philosophers. It was the home of Socrates, for you Bill and Ted people. Millennials, you don't know what I'm talking about. Paul then stood up in the meeting of Mars Hill and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, I just want to give you a little quick background. Scholars believe that this was not a very big group. A lot of people have gone on thinking that this is a huge stadium full of people. Scholars believe there's about 30 people here. To be a member of Mars Hill meant that you had some standing philosophically, that you were a very uh, devout and wise and learned person. So Paul's really in a group of about 30 people. He says, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with, the, with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, this really interesting story behind that inscription, about 600 years prior to this, there was a plague that hit Athens and a bunch of the, the Roman world, um, uh, what we call now the Roman world. And what they did, I guess this is like how they, they dealt with stuff like this, they summoned a Grecian poet. <laughs> so when, when it's getting apocalyptic, you got to get a Grecian poet. 
to come by and to let you know what's happening. So they summon this Grecian poet, and he tells the people of Athens to send out a herd of black and white sheep into the city. And wherever this group of of sheep um, ended up laying down um, as a group, you were to erect an altar right there in that spot and sacrifice the sheep on that spot. And they were to sacrifice this sheep to the God that we don't know who is angry with us. Agnostotheo, to an unknown God. Which has some interesting Old Testament, right, to it. Sheep, atonement, sacrifice, you know. It's like, hmm, what's going on here? So Paul goes on, he says, So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. This is what I'm going to announce to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. So looking around them, there's temples everywhere. Paul's saying that he's not here. He's not in these. All of this, the real God of the universe is not in them. And and he says, "And, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they would... They should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. That he's, he's announcing a God who's pursuing them that they might reach out. So piece by piece, he's dismantling tenets of Greek philosophy. He actually uses, he quotes a poem from Zeus, Okay? A quote of poem, not from Zeus, by a Grecian poet to Zeus, and it says this, For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. And then he quotes a Greek Stoic philosopher, and he says, We are his offspring. And he's announcing the gospel to these Greek people um, using their own philosophers and their own poets. And he says, verse 29 says, therefore we are God's offering. We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this in everyone by, uh, to this to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject, right? Because that's all they do is sit around and talk and think. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul. You hear that? Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, the Mars Hill, also a woman named Damarius, and a number of others. Verse 18, chapter 18, verse 1 says this, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So Paul shows up to Corinth 50 miles away after this by-himself encounter with the Mars Hill crowd, this upper-crust, high-level thinking group. 
And, and if, you, if you read Acts, if you go through and really study it, the end of Acts chapter 17, what we just read, is actually out of place from all the other things that Paul did. So most of the time, Paul goes to a major urban center, he preaches, God moves, plants a church there, and there's either one of two things that happens, okay? There's either revivals or riots. That's, that's what happens. Like, things get nuts one way or the other. And it, what happens a lot of times in our lives, when you begin to follow Jesus for the first time, there's sometimes like a revival and a riot in your life when that happens. People don't understand you. People are frustrated with you. You're not doing the same things you did before. They want to know. And, and there's something also that's happening in your life. So the interesting things that go on. In every other place, okay, except for Athens, uh, uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, all these different places, this is what would go down. And so what happens here is he's absolutely flawless in, in his brilliance in Athens, and he shares the gospel, and, and this end is weird, and we just get a taste of it, like a few people believed, and some of them just wanted to follow Paul around. And most of the time when he leaves the city, he's run out of town. And why is this so different? See, the Mars Hill discussion, a lot of times this passage of scripture is used by church planters and people called missiologists. And they study this and they study this and they think, this is how we communicate the gospel to a pluralistic society. This is the blueprint. This is the diagram. This is how we're supposed to do it everywhere. And what I like about that is yes, we need to preach the gospel. We need to announce the gospel in intelligent, creative, cultural, uh, in touch with culture ways. And we need to answer the questions people are asking. And it's different to announce the gospel in Denver than it is in the South or it is in China. It's just different. And so we need to learn how to do that. But here's the problem with this model. Two things that I think are really important. One, he never mentions Jesus. And he never mentions the cross. And I think that's significant. The crucified Messiah. So there's, there's no church planted here. There's no move of God as far as we know. There's a handful of people that, that look like they agree with what Paul's saying. There's no church. There's no baptisms. And Paul moves on. And he walks to Corinth, 50 miles to the southwest, all by himself. And my guess is, I mean, this is just me. I'm reading in here. My guess is 50 miles, you start reflecting a little bit. 50 miles, you start thinking to yourself, what just happened? Did that work? Did that make an impact? And I'm sure the spirit was kind of working on him and refining him. And, and, and I'm just going to ask the question, was Mars Hill a success or a failure? Just throwing it out there. Maybe Paul, maybe it was a learning experience for Paul. Because here's the thing, when you pop open 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we reread this with fresh eyes, what happens? Paul says, when I came to you, he came to him fresh off Mars Hill. He says, what, did I use wisdom and eloquence to communicate to you? No. Did Paul use wisdom and eloquence in Mars Hill? 
Yeah. So Paul comes, he says, he says, uh, he's like, I just choose to, I don't, I don't want to know anything else except for Jesus, Messiah, and him crucified. He talks about coming to them with fear and trembling. Was he, was he in fear and trembling in Mars Hill? No. He shows up in Corinth and he's just like, oh man. He talks about a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And, and then he uses this really interesting thing. He says, and, and, and there's like Greek formula for rhetoric. It, there's two different words here. It, when you would end a speech and you wanted it, like the haymaker, right? To end a speech, there was two different ways to do it. There was either dynamis, which was this way of persuading people. It's very emotional. It's tugging on their heartstrings. It's like really powerful stuff. And there was something called apodexis, which was proof and logic and kind of a mic drop reason approach. And Paul says, he talks about, he uses the word apodexis. He talks about the demonstration of the spirit's power. He's like, I didn't use persuasion, but with proof, with demonstration of what the spirit was doing. There's some debate here about what he means, what the demonstration was. Was it Paul doing signs and wonders? Most scholars believe that what Paul means by the Spirit's power was the changed lives of the Corinthians. He's like, I didn't show up with wisdom and eloquence, but the proof is in what happened to your life. The proof is that your life got changed. He's reminding, remember, he's writing this from Ephesus. He's reminding them of what their life was like. He's like, don't forget, your life got radically reshaped by King Jesus. And that had nothing to do with how eloquent my wording was or my stories or anything like that. It had everything to do with the Spirit's power. The changed lives of the Corinthians. I once was a temple prostitute, but now I am found. I once was a slave, but now I am free. And he goes on to verse five, he says, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. He's like, I didn't use any of that stuff and I don't want you to have it rest. I don't want your faith to rest on any of that stuff. I want, to, I want it to rest on the real story of God in the world in the person of Jesus, not emotionalism, not, not, not any of that stuff, but a tangible reality of God in the world. And so what's interesting is a lot of times this passage of scripture gets used by pastors <laughs> to talk about what they do. This isn't about me as your pastor. This is about you and I as an announcer, you and I as communicators of who Jesus is. See, what you need to understand is the best preachers on the planet are students and baristas and mortgage brokers and engineers and teachers and first responders. They're not guys like me. God reaches moms by dressing people up as moms who know and love Jesus, to befriend them and know them. God reaches engineers. God reaches people um, by using people that he wants in their actual lives to do something in the world around them, to announce the kingdom. 
to talk about that there is another king. And let me tell you what his kingdom is like by the way I live. You and I are walking proof of the foolishness of God. And we need to take that seriously. And when you get that, when you understand that, what Paul says here, it helps us to figure out how we share, how we show the kingdom. So four thoughts as we close. Four thoughts on mission as we close. The first one is this. The gospel is about going to people. Paul says, when I came to you, when I came into your world, right? So often our conversations around here is like, oh, I really need to bring my friend to church. Pastor, will you tell my friend <laughs> about Jesus? No, you do it. It's not about bring them to Ryan and it's this a this about going public and it's scary. Paul says, I came to you with fear and trembling. I didn't come to you like, oh, let me show you, let me, let me, let me argue you into the kingdom, right? Let me, I just want you to, I just want you to know that there's two there's two different models in the American church right now. There's the attractional model. And the attractional model is let's get a whole bunch of people to come to our church. We gotta get the music right, let's get the seats right doing like an iPad giveaway, you know, let's, maybe we'll get a, on Easter, I got a great idea. On Easter, we'll get a helicopter. We'll drop a whole bunch of eggs. People will be like, well, that's cool. And then they'll come to our church. I hate all of that stuff. You just need to know that like in me, like something dies inside. Okay. And I'm not saying it's wrong. I just hate it. Churches do it, that's great. That's just not for me, okay? So the other side of it is something called an incarnational model, okay? And this is get the church to go to people. It's messier. To the people who would not be caught dead in church kind of people. To incarnate actually means to embody the gospel, to actually put it on and what theology looks like it's like what theology what the study of God looks like in actual flesh and blood and that's you and uh, incarting the gospel of Jesus to people in your world that you ride the bus with that you ride the train with that you carpool with that you have the cubicle next to that you play basketball with on Saturdays that whatever it is that you incarnate the gospel in your world, not with Christian t-shirts and bumper stickers. Please. Okay? You know my feeling on bumper stickers, especially Christian ones. Living it face-to-face -face with people. I shared this quote with you last week. It says, community is vitally important because the church, the community of God's people is the hermeneutic of the gospel, meaning, in other words, the community of the church is the living, breathing, in-your-face demonstration of what it means to live under the reign of God. It's the face-to-face -face stuff. I heard someone say this in a message to pastors once. He said, it's not that the church has a mission, 
but that the mission has a church. See, a lot of times churches, they're like, well, we got a mission. No, the mission's already there. You're just following along. Because we've said this before, but it's, it's actually possible to believe in Jesus and not follow Jesus. And a lot of us are really guilty of this because it's just easy to believe in Jesus. And you've probably come into contact with people that believe something, but then it doesn't really look like they believe it, right? Because they're, like, they're just like you. To follow Jesus means that you're going somewhere. It means there's a trajectory to your life. It means that things are changing in your life. And so regardless about how your circumstances are unraveling, regardless about how things are going in your life, that this following of Jesus actually means something. It's actually changing something. And I promise that you, if you truly follow Jesus, you will end up in some uncomfortable places you will end up in some scary places. If you want a, a tame, if you, if you want tame, safe, and comfortable, don't follow Jesus. Just don't. Just take Sundays off. Hit, hit brunch. Yes, I love brunch. Right? Well, you can still do brunch and do this, but what I'm saying is, <laughs> if you want tame, don't follow Jesus. If you want a God that is real, if you want a God that is true, if you want a God that is at work, then Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The question is, are you on mission? Am I on mission? Second thing I want to share with this is this. I want you to understand how important it is to share the gospel out of your weakness. So often we think that we have to have everything shaped up in our lives, everything figured out. Or that if our weakness comes out, it'll in some way tell people that Jesus isn't really working. Jesus hasn't fixed us. And if Jesus hasn't fixed us, then we're not, then Jesus isn't real. That's crazy. See, we're so used to resumes and strength finders and, and all these things that make us look like we've got things figured out. And I love all that stuff. It's great. But one of the things that it doesn't do is it doesn't really share your weaknesses. Resumes aren't good at that. That's why if you ever take a job interview, people are like, so what are you not good at? That's always a great question, right? Where are you broken? One of the things we do around here is something called faith walking. We have a retreat coming up in April, and one of the reasons we do this is because it helps us figure out where we are broken and weak. And it's actually by digging into those places in our lives that we, we actually be, we see the power of God's grace in our lives. We actually experience his transformation in us. And when you start to tell people how you're weak and broken, um, they actually have this weird thing happens. They actually want to know that too. They want to know that God, that God works, that God redeems, that God shows up. So sharing the gospel out of our weakness. Um, one of the things that's funny is whenever I share up here, a lot of times, um, you know, I could tell a story or do something nerdy, and no one really cares. You just don't care. What I usually get feedback from is when, when I'm actually pretty vulnerable with you guys, and I share some things that I'm weak and I'm broken in, people come up to me and they're like, oh, thank you. Thank you for saying that. 
Like it's super, super pertinent. I think that's a really true phrase. When I heard someone say this once before. They said, never trust somebody until you've seen their limp. Don't trust them until you've seen their limp. I mean, that's really, really important. I, th- I want to be a church of limpers. Really. I want to know. I mean, I, I think it's so powerful to know and to experience our weaknesses together. Like if you're hiding a limp around here, you're actually robbing us like of like what God is doing in your life. Like if I know that what God has done in your life because of this limp, like that is such a blessing to me because that actually confirms in me that God could actually do that in me too. So don't hide that stuff. But it's easy to do. The third thing is this, the best apologetic for the gospel is a changed life. This idea that I was, I was this, but now I'm this. Apologetics is a study or a defense of the faith. It's this idea that reason statements that defend our lifestyle and our convictions. You know, you could spend a lot of time reading apologetics books. C.S. Lewis, Peter Hitchens, Ravi Zacharias, all these great thinkers, brilliant people. You can dig into creationism and irreducible complexity and all these fun things to talk about. You could memorize all these debates and proofs. But there's new questions being asked in our day and age. People aren't asking questions anymore about is the Bible true How do I know God is real? People are actually asking questions like whether or not the gospel is good. And morality questions like how could a loving God allow evil? So the new apologetic is actually something called praxis, which is actually this idea of followers of Jesus who actually live out what Jesus teaches. Okay? That's the new apologetic. I did some um, digging in the early church. The early church didn't have big churches. They, they had like little house clusters. We're practicing that next week. Um, they, they did it differently. And most of the writings for the early church to encourage them had to do with having patience, having to deal with suffering and being patient and living out their faith. It also had to do with their habits and the things they practiced. One scholar of the early church wrote this, this guy named Alan Kreider. If you, if you want to nerd out, you need to get this book. It's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. He wrote, contemporary apologetics is an intellectual discipline involving rational combat and intellectual jujitsu. The early Christian apologists, in contrast, talked about habitus as well as ideas. Their discourse had to do with how people live as well as what they think. How people live as well as what they think. Another early uh, Christian writer, a guy named Origen, wrote this. Christ makes his defense in the lives of his genuine disciples for their lives cry out the real facts. One thing to say, it's one thing to say God is love. It's a whole other story to love your enemy to actually love your enemy. It's one thing to say that that God loves the poor and helps the poor. It's another story to move to Nicaragua. 
See where I'm getting at? There's belief, and then there's following. See, you and I are the best apologetic that Jesus has. Your life should be living proof, demonstration proof, apodexis proof of the gospel. And you can't argue with a changed life. That goes beyond self-help, and it goes beyond behavior modification. And then another quote from Alan Kreider, and then we just, one more thing and we'll close. He says this, clearly the early Christians thought their way of life was important. For lifestyle is not the only product of belief. It is a display of what people truly believe. The Christian's lifestyle embodies their habitus, the reflexes that reveal the inner character that resulted from their conversion. Their life shows it. They don't have to say anything. And then the last one is this. And uh, I think this is really important because this has, all of this has to do with what we're trying to do on Wednesday nights for the next few weeks, a spiritual disciplines lab. And, and Dan's leading that. And I would really encourage you to come this week because we're actually going to be talking about, Ben's going to be leading part of the discussion with, with Brad and a few others. We're going to be talking about brain science and how you form habits. I'm telling you, it would be really, really cool if you were there. Wednesday night at the, this, this coffee shop we know about. Last one is this. The last one is, I'll say is this. Never stray from the center of the gospel, Jesus and the cross. Paul says this, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus and Christ, Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, we worship a crucified Messiah. And that is the matrix by which we live and believe and act. And if we never get away from that, ever get away from that, we'll be able to show people what it looks like to follow Jesus. Last thing, I'll, the last quote I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you is a guy named Justin Martyr, early church writer. In his conversation with a friend of his named Trifo, he, he wrote this. And this sounds eerily familiar with the verse in Titus we shared last week. We who were filled with war and mutual slaughter and every wickedness have each through the whole earth changed our warlike weapons. He's talking about the Christian community. Our swords into plowshares. And we, have, we cultivate piety, righteousness, philanthropy, faith, and hope, which we have from the Father himself through him who was crucified. That's the center of everything we do as followers of Jesus is worshiping a crucified Messiah. Let me pray.